Erica. How's it going? Hey, Brandon. I'm good. Are you chewing gum? I'm gonna leave if he doesn't stop. Um, yes. I mean, I love chewing gum. I'm all about the winter mint. It makes my breath feel like an Arctic blizzard. Look, I know you're new to podcasting, but you can't chew gum in the studio. That's like audio recording 101. Think of it as a zero chewing gum policy. Okay, wait. How about I make you a deal? I'll commit to reducing my chewing gum habit in the future. And in the meantime, I'll pay someone else to stop chewing gum. This way, it cancels out my chewing gum habit while I figure out how to live my life without minty fresh breath all the time. Think of it as a net zero chewing gum policy. Yeah, sorry not sorry. I'm going to need a zero chewing gum policy in here. None of this net zero business. And I see what you did there. This is a show about climate change and net zero policies are the norm when it comes to goals and targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But net zero emissions is not the same thing as zero emissions. And the same goes for chewing gum. Okay, fair enough. From this point on, no more chewing gum for me in the studio. I wish it was that easy for greenhouse gas emissions. Hey everyone, welcome to Life in the Greenhouse, a podcast where we explore major trends in the global response to climate change. I'm Brandon. And I'm Erica. Thanks for joining us for episode two of season one. This podcast is a project of the Carbon Accounting, Reporting, and Management Lab, a new research lab at Northern Arizona University with a vision to expand the practice of greenhouse gas accounting and build capacity for climate leadership. In this season, we're asking, is it really time to call oil and gas companies energy companies? We'll investigate that question over four episodes. In this episode, we're digging into net zero targets in an effort to answer our question. We're asking, what are net zero targets? How can we verify net zero? And what impact do these targets actually have on climate change? I'm really excited to dive into this today, but there's something we forgot to do in our first episode that I think we should do now, which is tell our listeners a little bit about who we are. And I'm gonna volunteer you, Erica, to go first because you've got a big day coming up soon. Yeah, uh, actually, Ross and I have a big day coming up soon on Friday. So in three days, we are graduating with our master's degrees in climate science and solutions. And I'm also getting a graduate certificate in science communication. And this podcast is a part of that certificate for me. Well, that is awesome. Congratulations. And we do also have Ross in the studio today, who's uh, later in this episode going to talk about the COP28 negotiations that are just wrapping up right now in Dubai. As Erica said, Ross, it sounds like you're graduating too. Yeah, indeed, in a few days. And it looks like I'm going to continue doing what we're talking about here, which is calculating emissions. That's going to be my career path, graduating with that master's degree in climate science and solutions with a graduate certificate, greenhouse gas accounting. Woo! <laughs> So the only one in the studio not graduating this week is you, Brandon. <laughs> How much longer do you have in your PhD and what exactly are you studying? Yeah, that's right. I made the wise choice of getting a PhD, which um, happens to take a few years longer. 
I am hoping to graduate in the spring of 2025, and that all depends on how quickly I can write my dissertation. I'm working on my first chapter right now, which is looking at our university's endowment, which is this big pot of money that we use to support all sorts of great initiatives on campus. It also happens to be invested in the stock market. And so I'm looking at the indirect greenhouse gas emissions from those investments as my first chapter in my dissertation. Right, okay, so enough about grad school. Today, we are talking about net zero emissions targets, which have become a pretty big deal in the past few years. You've probably bought products from companies that have net zero targets. Amazon, Apple, Delta Airlines, Target, Adidas, and so many other companies have pledged to reach net zero carbon emissions by a certain year. So why are we going to spend a whole episode getting into the weeds with net zero targets? Well, this season of Life in the Greenhouse is all about oil and gas companies and their rebranding as clean energy champions. A centerpiece of this rebranding is the commitment to net zero emissions. Shell, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and BP all have net zero targets, or at least aspirations. So what about that? Can we all relax a little, knowing that some of the biggest fossil fuel companies have pledged to zero out their carbon emissions? Are net zero targets in oil and gas a real climate change solution, or are they a strategy to maintain business as usual? Today, we are going to do our best to break down the basics of net zero targets in an effort to answer these questions. So stay tuned for our take on the role of net zero targets in the oil and gas industry. We keep saying net zero. Well, what do we mean? Net zero is shorthand for net zero carbon emissions. We can think about net zero carbon emissions as a two-part equation. Carbon emissions on one side and carbon removals on the other. So if my company emits 100 metric tons of carbon in a year, but I also remove 100 metric tons of carbon from the atmosphere in that same year, then my company has achieved net zero carbon emissions. The idea is that an entity achieves net zero emissions when it has no overall or no net effect on the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So why don't we just say zero carbon emissions? Well, the word net implies the two-part equation we just mentioned. Net greenhouse gas emissions equals carbon dioxide emitted minus carbon dioxide removed from the atmosphere. In today's day and age, it's really difficult for any company to get completely off fossil fuels and produce zero greenhouse gas emissions. So removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is one way to cancel out or net out your emissions. It's really important to emphasize that net zero emissions does not mean zero emissions. Emissions are still generated once a net zero target is achieved. And the emissions that remain once a company reaches net zero are called residual emissions. Think of these as the most difficult or most expensive emissions to prevent, so instead the company pays for some kind of carbon removal to cancel out residual emissions. Reaching net zero is a lot like balancing a scale. Carbon emissions are on one side, carbon removals are on the other. When these two sides are equal, you have net zero emissions. Another key detail to make clear is that most companies committed to net zero are nowhere near reaching net zero. These are targets. They represent a commitment to reduce emissions. Most net zero targets have an end date of somewhere between 2030 and 2050. The target year represents when a company would effectively balance the scale 
Until then, the company is still a net positive producer of carbon emissions. The net zero approach to greenhouse gas reduction targets became popular only in the last decade. The 2015 Paris Agreement highlighted the importance of balancing greenhouse gas emissions with removals of carbon dioxide by 2050. Following this agreement, Sweden became the first nation to commit to net zero emissions. Other countries followed, and it wasn't long before corporations started announcing their commitments to reach net zero. Today, net zero targets cover 91% of the global economy. And this stat is pretty amazing if you think about it. It's hard to get a 91% participation rate in anything. So the fact that nations and companies of the world are aligned in the pursuit of net zero is something worth celebrating. This means that all kinds of companies have committed to net zero. This includes companies we'd expect to have strong environmental priorities, like Patagonia. But it also includes companies we don't really associate with sustainability, such as the defense company Northrop Grumman, whose website homepage is an image of a high-tech battle tank. Household names such as Bank of America and Wells Fargo, Apple and Walmart, Walt Disney and Union Pacific all have net zero targets. Yeah, so we're talking about companies that manufacture goods, sell goods, transport goods, and provide services, which pretty much covers every kind of company. Nonprofits, universities, and even sports teams are making commitments to reach net zero emissions. However, they don't always use the term net zero. Oftentimes, they use the term carbon neutral instead of net zero. In theory, these two terms mean the same thing. Think back to the balanced scale analogy. If the amount of carbon I add to the atmosphere equals the amount of carbon I remove from it, the equation equals zero. The scale is balanced, and I have a neutral impact on greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But there are subtle differences that reveal a lot about a company's climate strategy. For example, carbon neutrality claims often rely on carbon offsets to balance the scale. A variety of projects can generate carbon offsets, like protecting a section of forest that otherwise would be cut down. In our next episode, we're going to take a close look at the world of carbon offsets and discuss some key challenges they pose. What you need to know now, however, is that companies can use offsets to reach carbon neutrality, while reaching net zero requires carbon removals. It's a subtle but critical difference. And funny enough, there are actually many other versions of this kind of greenhouse gas reduction goal. Microsoft is committed to be carbon negative by 2030, which means they've committed to remove more carbon from the atmosphere than they emit. Some companies use the term climate neutral to be inclusive of other greenhouse gases besides carbon dioxide. Whatever term is used, the concept of balancing emissions with carbon removals is what really matters. The math behind this concept is simple, but actually achieving it can be extremely complicated. Yeah, very complicated. We know about the emission side of the equation. Unfortunately, getting carbon emissions into the atmosphere is easy. But what about the removal part of the equation? How can a company actually remove carbon emissions from the atmosphere? Aha, that's a key question we need to address. And we will. But first, let's talk about another key net zero question. Net zero targets are voluntary, so why would a company, especially an oil and gas company, commit to net zero emissions? The answer may seem simple, to mitigate climate change. But like so much of what we talk about on this podcast, when it comes to oil companies and marketing strategies, reality is often more complicated than it seems. 
Why would a company commit themselves to net zero emissions? Think back to our climate science lesson in episode one. Carbon emissions from human activity have changed the composition of our atmosphere, and the result is a steady rise in average global temperature since the Industrial Revolution. A warming Earth has countless harmful effects, especially on humans, and the only way to stop the runaway train of climate change is to stabilize and ideally reduce the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So in one sense, companies are pledging to reach net zero to help solve climate change to be part of the solution. That's definitely the motivation, according to the messaging from companies that make these pledges. Here's an example from Shell's website. Tackling climate change is an urgent challenge. We will contribute to a net zero world where society stops adding to the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. On the surface, this sounds great, but let's take a moment to think critically about this. Why net zero and not just zero? Are there other reasons besides solving climate change that so many companies are hopping on the net zero bandwagon? Well, I'd just love to think that the corporate aristocracy has all of our best interests at the top of their mind. But I'm going to bet that at least some of the net zero phenomena is fueled by the simple fact that it's good for business. Companies can position themselves as part of the solution while they continue to pump tons of carbon into the atmosphere. Remember, Net zero emissions does not mean zero emissions. In most cases, a net zero target year is somewhere around 2050. So these companies have almost 30 years before they have to balance their emissions with carbon removals. Why solve the problem today when we can set a net zero target for 30 years from now? So by pledging to reach net zero emissions decades into the future, a company can continue emitting today and do so with a veil of sustainability. A net zero pledge sounds like a particularly great marketing tactic for an oil and gas company, given that those companies extract and sell the fuels that cause carbon emissions. But will any of these companies actually reach their net zero target? And the answer is, we don't always know. Oftentimes, the only data we have to evaluate progress towards a net zero target comes from the company itself. And of course, it's in their best interest to paint a picture of progress. But there are some organizations that track and scrutinize corporate net zero targets. One such organization is Net Zero Tracker. Their website, zerotracker.net, features an easy to explore database on corporate progress towards net zero goals. You can find a link to this website in our show notes. And if you go there, you'll see that there are 76 fossil fuel companies in the Net Zero Tracker that have either a net zero or a carbon neutrality target. These include companies across 26 different countries, and the list even includes the largest oil producer in the world, the Saudi Arabian company Aramco. This list covers the vast majority of global oil and gas production, but not all of these net zero targets are created equal. Just 20 of these 76 companies pledge to include scope 3 emissions and provide details of how they will meet their targets. Most fossil fuel companies with a net zero target address only scope one and two emissions. And you'll remember from our last episode that these are tiny compared to scope three. I want to emphasize a point Erica just made. Not all net zero targets are created equal. This is because there are few rules and regulations around making a net zero emissions pledge. However, there are widely regarded best practices that many corporations do follow. 
The Corporate Net Zero Standard was published in October 2021 by the Science-Based Targets Initiative, often referred to as SBTI. This framework, while voluntary, does give us a sense of what we should expect from a net zero target, and we've pulled a few key principles to highlight. Okay, here are the best practices for setting a net zero target according to the Science-Based Targets Initiative. First, according to the SBTI net zero standard, to reach a state of net zero at the corporate level, companies must deeply reduce emissions and counterbalance the impact of any emissions that remain. This best practice means that step one in any net zero plan must be reducing emissions. And then, and only then, a company can counterbalance any remaining emissions with carbon removals. So a strategy of no significant emissions reduction while using carbon removals to reach net zero is not in line with best practices. Another key pillar of science-based targets is requiring near-term greenhouse gas reduction goals in addition to long-term net zero targets. A company can pledge to reach net zero by 2050, but their plan must include interim targets to reach within five to 10 years. According to the SBTI standard, quote, when companies reach their near-term target date, they must calculate new near-term science-based targets to serve as milestones on the path towards reaching their long-term science-based target, end quote. So a plan should include a long-term goal and measurable steps that indicate progress towards the goal along the way. Yeah, the standard says those near-term targets, quote, galvanize the action required for significant emissions reductions to be achieved by around 2030, end quote. So this best practice ensures that companies not only commit to climate change mitigation in the future, but also get started now at mitigating their impact. Exactly. Okay, the next science-based target best practice involves scope three emissions. And the short version is, including scope three emissions in your target is absolutely required. The slightly longer version is that SBTI has different requirements for near-term versus long-term targets, but it emphasizes the importance of completing a full inventory of scope three emissions every year using established standards. You'll remember from our last episode that there are 15 distinct scope three categories, and each one has requirements that specify a minimum boundary that must be included in the inventory. A company must follow these rules to be in compliance with science-based targets. However, this can be a challenge for many companies because they don't have the resources to account for scope three emissions. SBTI addresses this challenge through what's called the expansive boundary approach for scope three emissions. Requirements to include scope three emissions are flexible for a near-term target. This allows companies to focus primarily on scope one and two reductions in the short run. But for a long-term net zero target, companies must include their scope three emissions. As time goes on, companies are required to measure, manage, and report on reductions across all scopes of emissions. The next principle we want to highlight involves the pace or speed of greenhouse gas reductions. In short, a net zero target must align with the best available science on climate change. This is why it's called the science-based targets initiative. The term science-based might seem both obvious and kind of vague, but it has a specific meaning. Here's why. The authoritative scientific body on climate science is the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. 
It recently published a special report about the need to limit global warming to an average of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. This is called the 1.5 degree target. The point of this special report was to summarize research on just how much warming we can afford to let happen. It turns out that the consequences of climate change grow exponentially based on how much warming we allow. The impacts of extreme weather, prolonged droughts, and flooding are predicted to be orders of magnitude worse as temperatures rise. This highlights the importance of aligning net zero targets with no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. Again, this is what puts the science in science-based targets. A long-term net zero target must be ambitious enough to limit warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. SBTI validates corporate net zero targets and ensures they align with this ambition. So at this point, you may be wondering how many fossil fuel companies currently have a validated net zero target with SBTI. And the answer, none, not a single one. This is because the SBTI no longer allows fossil fuel companies to go through the validation process for a science-based net zero target. They used to, but they recently revoked the SBTI status of 19 oil and gas companies. This was in response to a new oil and gas policy released by SBTI, which essentially highlights the basic contradiction between an oil and gas business model and deep cuts in their greenhouse gas emissions. SBTI is currently working on new guidance for the oil and gas sector, which will outline how these companies can align with best practices. But until then, there will be no science-based net zero targets for oil and gas companies. This goes to show how the oil and gas industry is simply incompatible with the deep level of emissions cuts required to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. And this should come as no surprise. The oil and gas business model depends on producing and selling the products that cause climate change. So any meaningful commitment to reduce emissions would require a rapid and dramatic change to their fundamental business model. The only way to actually reduce scope 3 emissions in an oil and gas company is to stop selling oil and gas. Because these companies are reluctant to completely redefine their business model, they have focused on the other side of the net zero equation, carbon removals. Let's revisit the two-part equation for achieving net zero. Carbon emissions minus carbon removals must equal zero. We've talked a lot about the carbon emissions side of this equation. Now let's focus on removals. Brandon, it's lightning round time. Let's get some quick fire answers on carbon capture technologies. First up, what is CCS? Right, CCS stands for carbon capture and storage. It's like a high tech trap for carbon dioxide at places like power plants. Captured CO2 is either tucked away underground or used in industrial processes. Now hit me with DAC. DAC, or direct air capture. It's like a giant CO2 vacuum cleaner. It pulls carbon dioxide straight from the atmosphere, using materials that act like sponges to soak it up. Moving on, what's the deal with nature-based solutions? That's nature's way of capturing carbon. Think of planting trees and conserving forests. Trees act like natural carbon sponges, but there's a catch. We're short on space, and things like wildfires can undo all that good work. So trees are great, but not the whole solution. Last one, what's the challenge with scaling up all these technologies? It's all about space and practicality. 
For CCS, you need big infrastructure right where the emissions happen. And for nature-based solutions, you need a lot of land. It's a really complex puzzle. And in order to keep the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal in reach, the International Energy Agency projects that carbon capture technology will have to scale from about 45 million tons per year today to over 1,000 million tons per year by 2030. That is a lot of captured CO2. So here's a question. What do we do with it all? 1,000 million million tons. tons. That's a gigaton. What a realistic scale for carbon capture to reach. Anyway, uh, we can't just pump 1,000 million tons of captured CO2 into the ground anywhere. To permanently store it, we have to find sites where the underlying geology will allow that CO2 gas to stay underground forever, which means we have to transport captured CO2. The most efficient way to do this is through pipelines. CO2 has been transported by pipeline for decades, but in order to scale this technology, the number of pipelines will have to increase dramatically. Right. In order to scale carbon capture to the level that all these net zero pledges would require, we're going to need a lot more CO2 pipelines. And a major challenge with this is that we all know pipeline failures happen. We've seen countless news stories about natural gas and oil pipelines leaking. Well, what happens when a CO2 pipeline breaks? A cloud of CO2 fills the air in that area. CO2 is heavier than air, so the concentrated CO2 released from the pipeline settles near the ground. As we all know, humans require oxygen, so if you're surrounded by a cloud of CO2, you'll suffocate. You'll experience CO2 poisoning. And helping people in this situation can be tricky. First responders are also subject to breathing in that ultra-concentrated CO2. And vehicles stop running because internal combustion engines require oxygen. If this sounds like a horrifying situation, that's because it is. And it's not science fiction. This has happened in communities like Satarsha, Mississippi. People who have experienced this firsthand are starting to sound the alarm about the required expansion of CO2 pipelines in order to support a growing carbon capture industry. And even if no CO2 pipeline ever fails, there's the issue we mentioned in episode one, the fact that a lot of CO2 gas is used in enhanced oil recovery, which means oil and gas companies use CO2 removed from the atmosphere to extract more fossil fuels. This complicates our two-part net zero equation we've been talking about this episode. If carbon emissions are balanced with carbon removals, the net impact on the atmosphere is zero. However, what happens when that captured CO2 is used to produce more fossil fuels? It seems like it would tip the scales towards more carbon emissions, towards more climate change. The simple truth is that using captured CO2 from the atmosphere to expand production of oil and gas is a blatant climate contradiction. And yet, this practice is front and center in the net zero strategies of oil and gas companies. If you visit ExxonMobil's webpage about their work in carbon capture and storage, they highlight multiple enhanced oil recovery sites in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, and Occidental Petroleum, which now goes by Oxy, claims their use of captured CO2 to expand production of fossil fuels will create net zero oil and gas. This goes to show how net zero in the oil and gas industry is less about transitioning away from fossil fuels and more about maintaining business as usual. If oil and gas companies can just capture a whole lot of carbon, then why stop using fossil fuels? 
This tension around the role of carbon capture technology in the energy transition was on full display at this year's annual Global Climate Summit in Dubai. It was actually the first Global Climate Summit ever to have a president that is also the boss of a major oil and gas company. Does that sound weird to you? Well, it sure does to us. So now we're going to bring on Ross, our net zero correspondent, to talk a bit more about what went down at this year's Climate Summit. Today, we're delving into some of the latest developments from COP28. Ross, can you start by giving us a little background on what COP28 is all about? Sure. COP28, or the 28th Conference of the Parties, is a global climate change conference under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC. It serves as the policy arm of the global climate action, while, as the previously mentioned, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, provides the scientific basis for these discussions. It's where world leaders, scientists, and activists can come together annually to discuss and make decisions on climate. In 2023, it was held in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Isn't the UAE a major oil-producing nation? Oh, yes. And this year's COP has been particularly noteworthy for that reason, which has sparked debates over the role of fossil fuel economies in this climate crisis. This year, there's been a lot of buzz about trying to juggle making money with, you know, saving the planet. The big talk is about moving away from fossil fuels, with the keywords being debated, such as phasing out of fossil fuels to cleaner energies. But it's not all done about going green. It's also about how these oil-rich companies can switch gears without their wallets feeling too light. Thanks for setting the stage. Now, there's been significant news about net-zero commitments from major oil and gas companies. Can you tell us more about that? Certainly. At COP28, 50 oil and natural gas producers, including some of the world's largest, like you said, Saudi Aramco, pledged to achieve net-zero carbon emissions by 2050. This group represents a whopping 40% of the global oil production. That sounds like a major commitment. What's your take on this? On the surface, it does seem like a big step. However, you'd be right to be skeptical. These pledges primarily cover scope one and two emissions, those emissions directly from the companies and those they buy energy from. Critically, they're leaving out scope three emissions, which are the emissions from the products they sell, which as we've talked about over and over, it's the most significant part of their carbon footprint. Yeah, that sounds like a significant omission. How does this align with the broader goals discussed at COP28? Well, Erica, there's a net zero tracker report, which came out just before COP28. And it's like a reality check for our global climate goals. The report reveals that while a lot of countries have set goals to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, kind of like people saying they want to eat healthier, there's a big gap in action. Most countries are focusing on reducing emissions in general, but they're not taking the tough steps needed to cut down on the main problem, fossil fuels. It's like saying you want to eat healthier, but you're still eating fast food every day. The report points out that only a few countries are seriously committing to stop digging up and burning fossil fuels. And here's the kicker. Even among those countries that have set these net zero targets, only a small fraction are actually planning to phase out fossil fuels completely. Just if we're acknowledging fast food is bad, but we're not giving it up and in fact are eating increasing amounts. And this is a big issue because experts like those from the International Energy Agency or the IEA are clear 
to really tackle the climate crisis, we need to stop using fossil fuels entirely. They're saying no more junk food if we want a healthier planet, but we're still struggling to change our diet. So there's a gap between the pledges and what's needed for meaningful climate action. Exactly. The Net Zero Tracker reports also notes that around 95%, so most, of the oil producing and gas producing countries have not committed to phasing out oil and gas exploration. This lack of commitment is deeply concerning and suggests a significant gap between rhetoric and action. Are there any positive aspects noted in the report? Some progress is evident in the private sector and among subnational entities. For example, over half of the publicly listed coal producing companies have pledged a phase out. Now, what's not mentioned is this is mostly due to the fact that coal tends to not be profitable anymore, but the overall picture, especially in the oil and gas sector, it's not nearly enough. As we wrap up, what do you think is needed going forward? What we need are commitments that comprehensively cover all emission scopes, including, and probably most importantly, scope three. It's crucial to align these pledges with scientific directives and have concrete plans to phase out fossil fuel usage. Without this, we're risking these net zero commitments becoming nothing more than lip service. The world needs actionable, enforceable plans, not just voluntary pledges that skirt around the most significant issue. Bottom line is, we can't have net zero with oil and gas. Strong words, but it sounds like they're needed in this crucial time for climate action. Thanks, Ross, for sharing your insights and helping us understand the complexities of these developments at COP28. We know we've shared a fair amount of not-so-encouraging news this episode. We all want to believe that net zero targets are a sign of major progress on a planet where we desperately need to stop emitting carbon. But not surprisingly, some companies are using net zero targets to obscure their real priority, which is to maintain business as usual while operating under a veil of sustainability. And this is just a fancy way of saying greenwashing. So what are we to do? How can we tell if a net zero pledge is legit? We're going to wrap up today's episode by leaving you with a toolkit for sorting the good from the bad when it comes to net zero pledges. Here are a few questions to ask when you see a headline about another company pledging to achieve net zero. These are the same questions we can ask when trying to figure out whether or not an oil company's net zero pledge will actually result in decreased emissions. All right, our first tool is simple. Just ask, is the net zero target validated by the Science-Based Targets Initiative? If yes, we know that the company is committed to addressing all their emissions, including scope three. We also know that there are near-term targets and reporting requirements that will provide transparency and accountability around the company's progress. And we know that a science-based target is in line with limiting warming to 1.5 degrees C. An easy way to check this is simply visiting SBTI's website. We put a link in our show notes that will take you to a list of all companies who've been validated under Science-Based Target's net zero standard. The second tool you can use to get a sense of how serious a company is with their net zero target is to go look for the greenhouse gas inventory. Is the company reporting on all emissions across all scopes? An easy way to find out is to look on a website called CDP. This is the nonprofit organization that began as the Carbon Disclosure Project, but it has since enlarged its mission and shortened its name to CDP. Again, this website is linked in our show notes. You'll have to create an account to search for companies, but it is free. 
CDP uses a standardized template for companies to report on their greenhouse gas emissions, in addition to details about their plan to manage and reduce emissions. CDP then ranks the quality of each response and gives each company a letter grade. If a company has an A on their CDP climate change response, they're likely doing a good job with greenhouse gas accounting and disclosure. And our last tool involves the net part of net zero. Like we discussed today, for a net zero target to be legit, it must only use carbon removals to neutralize any remaining emissions. But many companies plan to use carbon offsets to achieve their net zero targets. Some companies provide details about their carbon offset strategy, but in most cases, there's very little information about what kind of offsets they'll use. Our third tool for you is to ask if a company plans to use carbon offsets to reach their net zero target. If the answer is yes, bring a healthy dose of skepticism. The problem here is that many carbon offset projects are just completely bogus. In the past few years, the voluntary carbon offset market has been subject to increasing controversy because of poor quality projects. If a company plans to achieve net zero by offsetting rather than first reducing emissions and then removing carbon from the atmosphere, that's a giant red flag. Carbon offsets are murky. Cool in theory, but if someone tells me I can just pay money for someone else to store as much carbon as I emit, I might correctly say that it sounds too good to be true. Carbon offsets have their own set of problems. So many, in fact, that we think it's worth spending our next episode closely investigating them. Look for that episode in a few weeks, and thanks for listening.